This episode is brought to you by AlphaSense, the AI platform behind the world's biggest investment decisions. The right financial intelligence platform can make or break your quarter. AlphaSense is the number one rated financial research solution by G2. With AI search technology and a library of premium content, you can stay ahead of key macroeconomic trends and accelerate your investment research efforts. AI capabilities like smart synonyms and sentiment analysis provide even deeper industry and company analysis. AlphaSense gives you the tools you need to provide better analysis for you and your clients. As yet another value podcast listener, visit alpha-sense.com slash FS today to beat FOMO and move faster than the market. That's alpha-sense.com slash FS. All right. Hello and welcome to yet another value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like this podcast, it would mean a lot if you could rate, subscribe, review, follow it wherever you're watching or listening to it. With me today, I'm happy to have on my friend, Brad Hathaway. Brad, how's it going? Great to be here, Andrew. Looking forward to chatting. Brad is what's the title? What's the title I give you? CIO, CIO of Farview. What is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I consider myself the managing partner. Um, that's okay. how I refer to myself. But yeah, I never know. Well, here I'll tell you before I do the disclaimer. I'll just tell you, you know about. So I launched the podcast three years ago, and you and I we exchanged a few notes, but I think we met over the summer of 2021. And then when I was like getting, when I was like, okay, I really like the podcast. I want to keep doing it. I, I, I want to like start getting them edited and stuff. I put together a list of people I wanted to have on. And I think your name was number two or three. So it's taken two years, but finally got you on here. Uh, Very kind of you, Andrew. We've got a a really fascinating one to talk about today. Before we get there, I'll just give the same disclaimer I do to every every podcast. Nothing on this podcast investing advice. Neither of us are financial advisors. Please consult a lawyer, consult a financial advisor, anything you want to do, uh, but not financial advice. That's particularly true today because we're going to be talking about a company that that's pretty big, but the, the stock is quite illiquid because insiders own so damn much of it. So, you know, people should keep in mind that illiquidity carries an extra degree of risk, but this isn't financial advice. So that doesn't really matter anymore. Um, can I just add to the disclaimer quickly? I mean, I think, you know, it's important to remember that like every investor, I'm wrong frequently. Yeah, and that, uh, yeah, his, ev- there's plenty of evidence of that. And also, you know, I've at least found through my career that if I just buy something on someone else's advice and I don't do the work, then I'm actually not going to hold it through the volatility. So my ability to get those returns is almost zero. So it's kind of like if you do, if you buy something based on what someone says on a podcast, you deserve what you get. I, I've talked about this frequently. Like if you listen to a podcast, it, it, I mean, look, I, I run a podcast. I hope it gives a lot of value. I get a ton of value out of it. But if you went and bought something off a podcast, and again, we're not saying you should, but they report a week quarter and the stock's down 10%, you are probably going to sell or you might buy more. Whereas if somebody who's done the work, they're going to know, oh, down 10%, just a blip, buy more. Or they're going to know, oh, this was a thesis runner. I need to sell. Like you, you'll make all the wrong mistakes because you haven't done the work. You have no conviction. But Having had, yeah. knowing you, knowing that uh, you are one of three people who are asking questions on the Q3 earnings calls, yeah. company, I know you followed for a long time. The the company is Distribution Solutions. The ticker is DSGR. They used to be Lawson Products, so I might accidentally call them Lawson once or twice. But this fascinating company, I've got so many notes, but why don't I just flip it over to you to give a quick overview about Distribution Solutions and what's so interesting about them? No, absolutely. As you mentioned, so I've followed this company for almost a decade now, back when they used to be called Lawson Products. Um, and in 2022, they basically went through an interesting three-way merger where their major private equity shareholder, Luther King Capital Management, combined Lawson with two other distribution businesses that own Jex Pro Services and Test Equity. And in short, the reason why I think Distribution Solutions Group is really interesting, and again, disclosure, I own this, um, is... It's basically three really good businesses 
with um, that are basically niche specialty distribution businesses that have a really interesting uh, runway for both organic cash flow growth through revenue growth and margin expansion, uh, very and very accretive M and A, leading to long term cash flow compounding. And on top of this, they're run by a heavily incented, well-aligned majority shareholder who has a tremendous amount of experience in the distribution space. So both you have the alignment and the expertise to help with the organic initiatives and the M&A, which I think is a really compelling setup. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I guess the other thing we should talk about is, uh, let's start with maybe just the overall setup with the owner and stuff. So there are a few things I want to hit on first. There was a rights offering over the summer. And, you know, anybody who's read You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, which I maintain is the best book for investors who are looking for like kind of modern value investing, investor event driven investing, knows rights offering should per cause you to perk up. Do you want to talk about just the rights offering over the summer, just to give a little bit of background on that before we dive into everything? Yeah. So they did this combination in the spring of 2022. And, you know, initially the stock kind of reacted well to it. But then for some reason, I think just kind of in small cap malaise in Q3 of 2022, the stock really got hammered. I mean, declined like 30 or 40%. And so uh, Brian King, who's the head of Luther King Capital Management, you know, the goal of this has always been to, you know, basically he's got three verticals and he wants to acquire companies in each vertical to um, continue these kind of roll-ups because of the massive accretion one could see with well done M&A here. The problem was, is he's also committed to a three to four X leverage target because he wants us to be reasonably levered because it's, you know, a huge position for his family, a huge position for his fund. And so they found a great deal that they've been searching for years, a company called Hisco, finally was ready to transact in the spring of 2023. And they didn't want to go past their kind of four X leverage target. So they wanted to raise, they wanted to raise some incremental equity. But the problem is Brian didn't want to give equity out at the multiple they were trading at. So the theory was, okay, what's the best way to do this is let's explain to everyone the opportunity we see and give them a chance through the rights offering to keep their proportional ownership uh, of the business so that no one gets diluted, no one's, you know, no one's effectively selling stock at a low multiple. And LKCM, Luther King Capital Management, I'll probably refer to them as LKCM a fair amount, um, they were going to backstop the rights offering because they were like, listen, we think this is incredibly compelling. You know, we're going to make sure this rights offering is successful, but we want to give everyone else the opportunity to come along um, if they want. Well, so it, I just mentioned, I probably like put the cart before the horse, but I mentioned it, but you know, everyone who does venture investing knows when there's a rights offering, you, you've you got to look. And one of the most interesting things here is, as you said, LKCM does the rights offering. There are huge shareholders. They oversubscribe to the rights offering, if I remember correctly. And let me just see if I can find the one quote I, I really liked about this. Uh, I'll, I'll find it and go, go with it later, but so let's talk about the business. So there are three different verticals here, but this is basically a specialty distribution. Do you just want to talk about the overall business? And I think people might get really jazzed if you start talking about some of the comps that, you know, might not be in the exact same verticals, but some of the comps and the compounding returns that you've seen with these types of things. No, absolutely. And I think, so we'll start off with the idea that special distribution as opposed to more kind of broad line distribution is something where it's either scarce parts, um, you know, complex um, supply chains or complex sets of parts or very much kind of niche products. So it's not something you're going to be buying on Amazon. It's not something you're going to be, you know, really easy to get. And so what that means is you have a fair amount of expertise, you have a very knowledgeable sales force, and there's a fair amount of initial services that kind of come along with the actual distribution of the product. 
And in this case, it's actually even more um, more service oriented than that because I think the core underlying part of the business here is something called vendor managed inventory or VMI. And so what that means is effectively um, you are outsourcing your supply chain for this particular set of products to the vendor. Um, Lawson has been the, the classic example of this. So the way to think about Lawson is they do vendor managed inventory for maintenance and repair organizations. So what that means is let's say you are an auto mechanic. Um, you would have a wall of bins with various SKUs and we're thinking fasteners, we're thinking screws, we're thinking chemicals, we're thinking abrasive tools. And that wall would have the inventory. And if Lawson is doing their job properly, if Lawson salesperson is doing their job properly, you never have to pick up the phone and order something because the salesperson is visiting you on a certain number, like, you know, either it's, you know, every couple of days or weekly. And they are, and they know your business well enough that they are anticipating your needs. They're saying, Andrew only has 30 fasteners left. I know he uses 35 over the course of the week. We need to, we need to up that so he never runs out of a fastener. Um, but Brad only, Brad has 30 fasteners, but Brad only uses 15 in a week so I can wait till next week to fill them. So what that means is it's incredibly service intensive. And what it saves you is from having your $100,000 a year mechanic spending time unpacking boxes, spending time running inventory because you have outsourced that to your lost in salesperson. I as, think you're, go ahead, go ahead. I was saying, as a result, you know, and I'm going to start with Lawson and I can kind of move to the other ones. As a result, you know, Lawson historically is around 55 to 60% gross margins on parts that have an average selling price of about 90 cents. It shows, you know, these are the service intensive nature is really what gives that. And then, so just continue on the BMI. Well, let's just, right. let's stick with Lawson real quick, just because sure. you were talking about, I, I think there's two, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not just, hey, you don't want your mechanic who, you know, their time is best spent spending three hours repairing a car or a truck or whatever. It's not just that. It's also, hey, if you ran out of a fastener, right? If it takes three hours to repair a car, you run out of the fastener, you have to call, get a new one delivered. That car, instead of sitting there for three hours and kind of churning, is now sitting there for two days and like you're losing all sorts of revenue. Is that That's one piece yeah, of that, yeah, right? A better way maybe to phrase that, phrase that is United Rentals is yeah. one of the biggest customers of Lawson. And you don't want to have a you know multi-billion dollar excavator sitting idle because you're missing a dollar part. And so, yeah. And then, so let's just talk about the Salesforce dynamic as well. So if if you were the salesperson, right? Like literally what it is, is the you would come to my garage or whatever. You would literally go in the bin and say, oh, Andrew only has 10. He needs 35. You would actually just, without insulting me, you yeah. would toss 25 into the bin and then you would charge me for 25 yeah. fasteners, right? So there's also like a real degree of trust that you're charging me for 25 fasteners. And I was thinking about it the other day, because as you said, like some of these things are, a dollar apart, right? Yeah. It would be so easy for you to charge me for 30 instead of 25. I don't even know how I'd audit you or catch you. Like, uh, There's something about that degree of trust that I think is really interesting. I don't know if you want to add anything there. Well, no, and I think a lot of it is these are, you know, a lot of Lawson sales reps are very long tenured. So, and these are root-based businesses. So, you know, if I'm your sales rep, I'm seeing you, Andrew, every week, you know, and I'm on, and so there is that element of trust that's built over the years. And if you're a good salesperson, you know, making an extra, you know, making an extra 30 cents on adding one extra screw to your order, is that really worth potentially ruining a relationship we might have over a decade where I'm going to sell you 50,000, 75,000 screws? How would you get caught adding the extra screw? Because I, I even thought about like- well, eventually, eventually, if this, if the, if the you're the mechanic and your bins are overflowing with stuff you're never using, I think that leads to questions. Because again, you, you know, they're going to see, you're going to see how many products are there and how many are being, whether or not they're being properly used. I, I more meant like- over this, but yeah. 
if you charge me for 26, but only put 25 in my bin, right? Like how would you ever catch somebody when well, that would be caught that would be caught on the Lawson side because in theory, you know, you know, in theory, those number of 25 should, should come out of their inventory. And if there's 26 on the purchase mm -hmm. order, there'd be an inconsistency there. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and obviously they Lawson as an organization is very aware that the trust of their customers is one of the most important things they have. So the reason the reason I ask is because and I, I'd love for you to dive into this comp. Obviously, they they've provided a set of peers and the multiples and stuff, but Every investor has seen like there's the HBS or Barron's cover story that's facet. What's the best performing stock over the past 30 yeah. years? Like I, I think it was in 2018. It was like, it's not Apple. It's not Amazon. It's not any of the companies. It's Fastenal. And it's yeah. like, what do they do? They're the, in the exciting business of they distribute screws, right? And yeah. so, hey, I, I mean, that's a direct comp, very yeah. similar model. I think slightly different end markets, but very similar model to yeah. Lawson. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, a little more branch based where they do, you know, they have their retail, I'm about retail location. They have their branches that they're distributing out, whereas Lawson is more root based. But yeah, effectively, they are a lot of similar parts. Uh, Lawson is a little more of a mom and pop customer base um, than Vastinol. Uh, so yeah, they are, there's a fair amount of overlap in the Venn diagram there. Yeah, but obviously, like, look, when you say, hey, we've got a similar business, the trust based business, the dollar, you know, the dollar or less parts to the best performing stock over the past 30 years. Like, hey, and now a quick break to remind you that this episode is brought to you exclusively by AlphaSense, the AI platform behind the world's biggest investment decisions. AlphaSense gives you the tools you need to provide better analysis for you and your clients. As yet another value podcast listener, visit alpha-sense.com slash FS today to beat FOMO and move faster than the market. That's alpha-sense.com slash FS. So let me ask, just with loss and with, uh, with this DSGR, obviously there's a lot of trust with the relationships, but what is kind of the secret sauce that we'll talk about the returns on capital and stuff. Part of it is the trust, but sales sales forces can be poached, right? It's not like it's hard. You and I could go tomorrow and buy, I mean, I'll, I'll chip in $4,000, you chip in $4,000 and we could buy a bunch of screws and maybe hire a salesperson or we're both pretty outgoing. Maybe we could be the salesperson. What's the secret sauce that kind of gives them advantages as they scale and lets, lets this business compound? Well, one of the nice things here is it really is a many-to-many -many distribution. So we're talking about you know 170,000 customers, 500,000 SKUs, and 7,000 suppliers. So you have you have a lot of area. You know, it's not just you and I can go buy 4,000 SKUs. We have to be able to distribute a huge number of parts from a huge number of suppliers. And at Lawson, you know, their biggest customer is only three percent of revenue. So it's not like we can poach one big customer and say, oh, we have um, we have. Um, we've done it. And so it's not, it's this idea of this many to many where the dis distributor really adds a lot of value because you are, you have the challenges of doing a, of kind of corralling the many players on the supply side between the number of suppliers and the number of SKUs and managing that. And then also managing the number of players on the demand side. And that's where really this person in, in the middle could add value. I was wondering, so hearing you on all that, I was wondering how much of it was like a, you mentioned route-based density, how much of it was like a logistical advantage as you scaled up? Because like, if you and I started and we managed to poach a customer, two customers, one on each end of yeah. town, like we'd spend a lot of time driving. And then if it was only two customers and we had to service them, you know, once each customer once a week, we'd have so much downtime. Whereas if Lawson has, you know, hundred customers on each part of town, then the yeah. salesperson would be like, hey, Mondays you go to the West side, Tuesdays you yeah. go to the Midtown. Like how much is the the density an advantage for them? No, it's absolutely a huge advantage. And actually one of the interesting things they've been doing uh, with the new CEO, Cesar Lanuza, 
he's come in and basically kind of moved a bunch of their smallest customers that were basically uneconomic to their inside Salesforce and their digital channels with the idea being that, you know, even with the existing route-based business where Lawson has this advantage, there are still customers who are relatively inefficient for them to, for them to um, service because, you know, they're order, only ordering $500 worth of parts, but it's a 45-minute drive and, you know, whatnot. And so this idea of basically gross profit dollars per unit of salesperson time is absolutely critical. And so if you don't have that density, then the gross profit dollars you're going to be able to get are not going to offset the time your salesperson has to do to basically manage the business. And it's actually been one of the historic challenges for Lawson has been the getting new sales reps up to speed. Um, they used to have a chart in their old decks. Basically, the productivity of a seasoned sales rep, which is effectively year three plus, was kind of 3x, I believe, in memory serves, the productivity of a year one of a completely new Greenfield sales rep. And so those first sales reps were effectively uneconomic, but Lawson would make the investment in them to try to hope that a certain portion of them would become seasoned sales reps. So starting up with it, starting a business with a bunch of unseasoned sales reps, you'd be you'd have to be willing to burn money for a fair amount of time. Perfect. I've got a few more questions. Why don't we go to the other two businesses and then I'll come back? Yeah, to and, and I guess yeah, just continue on. I mean, I think again, the core concept throughout this is this concept of vendor managed inventory. So whereas Lawson does vendor managed inventory for the maintenance and repair mechanic. Uh, Jexpro Services does basically uh, vendor managed inventory for OEMs. So, and these are all still small dollar figure inventory. These are, these, these are bigger. These are bigger dollar figures. Um, I think it's like, um, you know, because again, you're talking about like building a big gas plant somewhere or working with a big renewables company. Um, but what's really interesting is I believe it's seventy percent of their um, products are specifically engineered for the customer. So it's a very collaborative relationship. It's not like you're buying a screw off the shelf. You're basically working with the customer and saying, what do you need for this factory? Okay, we will go source and create that for you. And that's become a very sticky business. So Jexpro has 98% uh, uh, customer retention because they're really a collaborative partner that is finding the parts for this. And you know, they made a comment to the investor, something like it's, I think it's 25 to 30% procurement savings that uh, an OEM gets from going to with Jexpro. You mentioned 98% uh, customer retention ratio. I mean, it, would I be right to say the only reason somebody's going to leave this once you kind of get inside there is basically the business goes belly up or maybe yeah. gets taken over by someone? Yeah, I think that's that's generally the case. And you know, so Jexpro is 98, Lawson's in the low 90s, like 92. And Lawson has the incremental thing of occasionally like a sales rep goes to a competitor. And so given the relationship nature of the business. But yes, generally the benefits of this are unless... And there's also a small chance wherein the service levels are poor or something like that, but that's very rare. I mean, these are very, very sticky businesses, which is one of the main benefits here. Um, Want to hit the third business real quick? Yeah. And so then the third business is uh, Test Equity. And so part of their business is vendor managed inventory for electronic production supplies like solder and things like that. And that's actually becoming an increasing portion of their business with the acquisition of Hisco, which was a pure VMI business. And so again, it's you know for um, you know for aerospace and defense for electronics things like that. They are they are basically providing you know a lot of these kind of low dollar price parts. That but actually in this case even have more expertise because like solder is a very complex product um, that you need a real um, you need some real a knowledgeable sales force to distribute. Um, they also have a, another business which has uh, been a little bit of a source of problems that they distribute test and measurement equipment. So you think you have key side equipment, uh, Rodian Schwartz, Tektronic equipment. And that is the one part of the business that's a little more kind of capital cycle tied because, I mean, obviously these are a couple hundred thousand dollar pieces of equipment. And um, so that is probably, that's the only kind of part of this that's not really vendor managed inventory, but it is now a 
relatively small part of the overall mix um, because of the you know post the Hisco acquisition. So I think you first mentioned Lawson to me probably eighteen months ago, and this was right when the the three businesses got combined. And I, I guess you know the first thing was I kind of looked at it, I was like, oh, I get what Brad's saying, but you know. It, I, I'm always a little skeptical of, and we'll talk why the inorganic growth makes sense in a second, but I'm always a little skeptical of inorganic growth stories. And then I was kind of like, LKCM took a public business that they controlled and combined it with two private businesses they controlled. And I was just kind of like, you know, Brad's probably right, but life's too short. And then I will say, as people will hear, I got super excited when I read the analyst day and prep for this, but I was kind of just like, life's too short. So I want to ask two questions on that front. Yeah. A, you know, what gives... We've probably mentioned a few of it already, but you know, when I when I just lay out, hey, publicly controlled company merging with two privately controlled companies, I mean, that's not a red flag. That's like a red yeah, no, skyscraper, right? So what gives you confidence there? And then I, on top of that, I, I want to ask you, that let's, once we get past that, the main question is actually, hey, why do these three businesses, which are all VMI, but which yeah. are serving completely different customer bases, why do these three businesses belong together? Because the company is definitely pushing, there are synergies, there are reasons to belong. It, it, you kind of have to think that first. So I'll, yeah. I'll turn it over to you. No, absolutely. And I'll start maybe on the uh, on the kind of wide piece because I do agree like, yeah, there's obviously been a lot of examples of like a private equity shareholder taking taking advantage of minority public markets investors and whatnot. Um, what was interesting to me here is, you know, a couple things. One is LKCM did not take any cash out of this transaction in any way. In fact, they took entirely stock. So they went from, you know, controlling 40% of Lawson to basically 65% of this business and really kind of tied tied themselves to the mast in terms of, you know, this is roughly 35% of their funds. It is a massive position for them that they need to make work. And what we've seen is also their behavior since owning has been incredibly shareholder friendly. So Brian King is now the CEO of DSGR and he takes zero cash compensation. His, you know, he's not take as opposed to, you know, I, I'm involved in a couple of the roll-ups where all of a sudden the manager's making a few billion a year and they're getting bonuses and they say, hey, you know, if the stock goes up, we make a lot of money. And then you have to be like, yeah, but if the stock goes down, you still make a lot I, of money. I, I have I have a different one where they literally, the founders stepped back and hired a new CEO and they took, you know, multi-million dollar pay, paydays as their quote to step back. And, you know, I was like, okay, guys, you own a large percentage of this company. Did you really need that extra multi-million dollar payday? Um, and so Brian has taken absolutely no cash compensation. In fact, LKCM is taking no management fees for any of this, and they're contributing significant expertise in terms of both their M&A teams and, um, and their, um, basically operations team. They have an operations, uh, improvement team, and they're basically not getting paid for any of this. So not only are they not taking advantage of shareholders, but they're actually contributing significant expertise at, at, for basically no compensation on behalf of shareholders. And so you start to see the behavior, which gives you real comfort that they're actually working on your side. And then um, when you also things like the rights offering, you know, LKCM could have done, you know, could have basically contributed the capital themselves. They could have, in fact, Ryan waited till after the Q1 results, which were really, really good, specifically because he did not want um, to basically be taking advantage of other investors because he knew Q1 was going to be good. So he waited to price the price of the until after that, you know, that information was in the market. So we're starting to see enough behavioral things wherein, um, you know, he's doing the right thing enough times. You, yeah, he and his team, it's not just him, but he and his team are doing the right thing enough times where you really start to kind of build up that reservoir of trust. Um, again, you know, like 
the flips they easily could have also taken loss in private and done this in the private markets. Um, they have plenty of capital, and Lawson was not richly valued previously as a public market security. So there was definitely a scenario where they could have not brought people along for the ride. Instead, they chose to you know put put out a proxy with pretty aggressive projections to show people the opportunity they saw, and then do things like hold this investor day where you know as a public market CEO you are taking on some liability by putting aggressive targets out there. And Brian got up in front of the investing public and said. $5 of EPS in five years. Um, and, you know, that is for someone who's not getting paid a dime for spending that time, you know, he's, he's taking on risk. So what gives me comfort effectively has been the behavior of them throughout. Now, obviously it is something to keep an eye on, but at this point, as opposed to, and again, I own, unfortunately, own a couple other roll-ups where the behavior has not been as good. Um, I have not, I have not seen anything that's given me any discomfort. Yeah, no, I'm completely with you. I, I get, I, I would encourage anyone. I read the analyst say and I was like blown away. It was one of the best analyst days I've ever seen. And I'll come back to the LKCM history and story in a second. But let's just talk about why do these three businesses belong to them, right? Like, so there is VMIs. If you're acquiring, you know, as we mentioned, there's route-based density. You get a little bit bigger. You get a little bit of pricing power with your suppliers. There are certainly economies of scale within something. But why do three different VMIs belong together? So the easiest argument is effectively that, you know, Jexpro and Lawson are very similar businesses, just serving different customer bases. And um, those businesses, and also the kind of BMI part of Test is also some very similar, serving different customer bases. And so if you are serving a big multinational, for example, if you're serving General Electric, you know, both they have, and which is Jexpro's biggest customer, because they actually, Jexpro stands for GE Experience Professionals, because uh, it used to be incubated inside GE. Yep. GE is the biggest business. If you are servicing GE for their OEM piece, they're using a different supplier for their MRO piece. And, uh, you know, Jexpro has talked multiple times about how they didn't have an MRO offering because it is a different end market for them. And Lawson has talked in the past about how they didn't have an OEM or uh, an OEM offering. And so there is significant ability to basically bring your kind of sibling company into into a big customer and say, yes, you you love us for OEM here. This is our so, someone very similar to us for MRO. And so you're seeing a lot of those kind of cross-selling synergies. And you see that as well with the BMI, the BMI, the BMI part of test equity. The hardest part is the test and measurement business. Um, that's probably got the least synergy so you can get as a different business model. What they would argue is that that's kind of the tip of the sphere in terms of kind of early stage investment and it helps kind of create leads for them. That's probably the one where there's this the least compelling argument. But what we've seen is, you know, the investor they talked about, they have, um, I think it's 250 opportunities for cross-selling that they think have line of sight to over 50 million of, re of revenue. So there's significant value add in um, in kind of having these businesses introduce each other. You know, for example, Hisco has a very big uh, business in Mexico and obviously nearshoring means Mexican and uh, there's gonna be a lot of investment into Mexico. Um, Lawson has no business in Mexico and Hisco is now bringing Lawson into Mexico um, as a you know, kind of, if you're doing, you know, they're doing the electro electronic production supplies, you know, Lawson can help with the you know, more industrial side of it. And so there's that. And, the, and I guess the other part of bringing them together is the, while these are fragmented industries, you know, they're not enough of them so that, you know, each of the verticals on its own can be consistently buying and acquiring every year. And so having three verticals allows for the cross allocation of capital. So for example, when, you know, right now, 
Test Equity has just done a big Hisco deal. And I think they talked about the investor day. You know, Test Equity probably does, is not ready for another deal anytime. A big, another big deal in the near future, but Lawson and Jexpro both have plenty of capacity for a new deal. So given that they're under lever right now, instead of having to wait till the Test Equity business is um, ready for the new deal, they're like, oh, we can reallocate that capital to these two other verticals that have more kind of capacity for m and so those they, are the two, the two reasons. They mentioned, and I wasn't sure if this was, you know, sometimes they'll get out there and try to, companies will get out there and like throw a, a small thing out there and it's kind of meaningless. But they mentioned, I, I think it was from memory, it was either printing or labeling. And they said test equity had like a, a ton of excess printing or labeling capacity. And by merging, like we could do that in house. And look, these are businesses where their target is low double digit EBITDA margins, right? Like if you're bringing something in the house and saving a little bit of money or leveraging fixed costs, like every little bit actually mad matters when you're talking about margins that low. But it, it did just strike me as I wasn't sure, like, was that just one example of the many they were using or was that a real thing that they were kind of showing that they could scale up? Yeah, and there's some of that. There's some cost saving, but I think the real big thing is more the revenue opportunity. Like, you know, for example, also like JexPro is now manufacturing something for test equity that they used to have a manufacture somewhere else that's much more efficient. Um, and they, you know, they haven't started doing it yet, but there will be some kind of vendor consolidation and some ability to get some cost savings on the side. But in reality, what they really see is the ability to introduce each other business, the other businesses into kind of a similar customer base and provide for revenue synergy. So I think that's what they, yeah, you know, I think, yeah. And the 50 million is kind of the, I think the, the first step that they say. We have talked a lot about it, but I think, tell me if I'm wrong, the two pieces of this thesis would be, hey, you've got a specialty distributor trading for 10 times EBITDA and peers, you and I can disagree, mid double digits EBITDA is the number. This is a specialty distributor. They've got a uh, a lot of room to grow through inorganic acquisitions, which tend to be great for special distributor. That would be point one. And then point two would be, and this is the point, again, when I kind of dismissed it 18 months ago, I think I was missing and I didn't realize until the investor day. I think point two would be LKCM is a killer at this, right? They are an absolute killer. Their track record is unbelievable. Would those be the two, like if I had to boil it down? Yeah, I, I think it's it's basically, it's a, yeah, it's a good business and a space that's proven to be attractive for a creative M&A that because of its complexity is trading kind of below where it should, and then you have an incredibly capable steward who so far has proven himself to be trustworthy. I, so I just want to go, and again, I would encourage anyone, read. <laughs> the analyst day is so, it is so long that I I always block off, I've told people this, for a podcast, I block off half a day to prep. I blocked off yesterday and then I got a quarter of the way through it because it is a long analyst day. I got through so, uh, through like another a quarter to th thirds of it. So I'm probably two thirds away through. So I couldn't even get through all of it, but it was so exciting. I'm obviously going to go finish it after this. It was so exciting. I encourage anyone to go read it, but I just wanted to ask you, like, can you give a little bit more about LKCM's history yeah. with the special distributor? Because again, when you read it in the analyst day and when you see them talking about it, you're going to see what Brad sees and be like, oh my God, this is, this is real. Maybe it's not the best opportunity in history. Maybe it is, but you will at least see this is worth doing work on. This is really interesting. No, it, it is one of the things that you say, like the investor day is very long because one of my favorite things about Brian King is you start talking to him about distributors and I've had hour long phone calls scheduled with him that have gone for two hours and a half because once he starts talking about distribu the distribution businesses, he gets really excited. And that's because, you know, he both has a tremendous amount of history, you know. Um, so L LKCM, I'll, I'll back up for a second. LKCM is basically the private equity arm of, of Luther King Capital, or this is LKCM Headwater is technically the entity in control of this. And that is the private equity arm of Luther King Capital Management, which is a Dallas-based money manager, multi-billion dollar, long track record. Brian King is the head of LKCM. 
And they've been doing basically distribution M&A. They've been doing distribution acquisitions for over 20 years now. Hey, and, direct quote, we've spent the last 20 years focused on specialty distribution and building scare there and knowledge. And we've been able to attract a really resilient ecosystem of operators and coaches who are investors in DSG. That was the quote that I thought was, that was like the most yeah. interesting quote to me from the NLC. No, I mean, they, they, so I think it's 16 or 17 companies. I think the ones they still own, I think they merged with a 5X and the ones they've exited generally got a 10X. Yep. Uh, so really strong IRRs in this in this distribution space with so a ton of historical institutional knowledge. And as you said, I think the comment during the investor was like, they've got like 100 specialty CEO, specialty distribution executives in their kind of advisory slash limited partner pool. So there's a tremendous amount of knowledge. I mean, I think they talked about um, Hisco was something where a, one of their guys was the executive coach to the number two at Hisco. And so they had incredible insight in the business, you know, and so they have this expertise about this specific area and they have a ton of history of doing it and a ton of history of doing success. But it's also not just that, you know, I've spoken to empl uh, employees who say, you know, when you talk to Brian about distribution, it's been the same experience I've had. He is A, incredibly knowledgeable, and B, really loves distribution businesses. So his breadth of knowledge and his excitement about the space, um, you know, he means that his excitement means he's excited to continue learning about the space. But he's a guy who understands both, has a lot of history with all the companies in the space, understands what great looks like for a really good specialty distributor, and has the network to both source really good M&A deals. Um, I think they don't they don't get Hisco without his network. They don't get Partsmaster, which was a deal Lawson did a couple of years ago without his network. Um, they actually heard about Jexpro when it was part of Rexel, which is a French conglomerate, and basically figured out a way to carve it out of Rexel, which became you know Jexpro, which is this incredibly attractive business. So his knowledge of the space means he knows how to run the company as well. And his knowledge, knowledge of the industry means he has access to opportunities that you and I are never going to see because we're not going to know, oh my goodness, there's a great little distribution business that's 3% of revenue at this French conglomerate. Um, you know, can we can we convince them to sell it to us? Um, and so having someone with that kind of expertise run your, you know, book run an MA thing, I think is critical because obviously the, one of the risks of MA is generally the sellers know more than the buyers. In this case, there's still a lot of obviously seller knowledge, but Brian's known a lot of most of these companies for 20 years. And so that gives him a really strong base of knowledge to start with. Also, and if you believe the the scale, there's scale benefits in this industry, like that is the one reason where, hey, you're buying a seller. Yeah, they probably know more than you. Yeah, they've probably tried to like front load earnings to get the best price for their business. But if scale is a benefit and you go and buy a company for 10 times and their EBITDA margins are six and you can get them to 10 by throwing them onto your platform, by yep. getting more density, like that's how you overcome everything. And as you said, these guys have a history of it. Other specialty distributors have a history of it. And Let's go ahead. Sorry, can I just, can I just double yeah, click yeah. On, the, on the synergies there for a second? Because actually, one of the, it's not just also cost synergies, it's revenue synergies as well. So if you look at what they, they highlighted two deals in the investor day, they highlighted T equipment, which was a test equity acquisition. And the comment was basically T equipment was mainly selling small and medium customers, whereas test equity was selling larger customers. And T equipment didn't have a, um, didn't have a relationship with, um, with uh, Keysight, which is the largest player in the test and measurement space. So by introducing Keysight into the T equipment business, they were able to massively grow that business and brought down the rev brought down the EBITDA multiple by a full two turns within the first yeah, 12 months of, of owning it. Same with Resolux, which is a Jexpro acquisition. Um, basically, it had a relatively it had a very good European footprint, but in a relatively limited product portfolio. So by introducing Jexpro's product portfolio into Res into Resolux, 
they were able to massively increase the revenue. So it's actually not even just the cost centers of bolting and odds. It's really, there's all, generally what they've said is they only want to buy something with commercial logic, wherein there's going to be significant revenue synergies by, as you say, adding this to part of the platform. And they've got great experience of doing that. You know, they're 22, 22 acquisitions they bought at 7.7x. And within, yeah, I think it's 15 months, they brought down to six point, the multiple down to 6.3x, mainly through revenue growth. And they expect to get at least two turns. Yeah, they're, they're not done yet. Every After a couple of years, they expect to get two turns. And they've got a track record of doing it. So yeah, you can. the great thing is you can buy something at eight, but if you can then bring it to six through you know through the accretion that you and your platform is uniquely able to provide, that is highly accretive and that gives you a big advantage. Those discussions of multiples actually go nicely into my next point. Let's talk fair value. So I, I guess the first thing to do is, you know, we've said 10 times EBITDA several times here. When you start thinking parse and everything, you know, you start thinking, oh my God, like those are actual physical things. They need to be stored in warehouses and stuff. But, you know, I think people might be surprised by the the D and the DNA here. So let's just talk, you know, 10 times EBITDA. What are you kind of talking about free cash flow? And ignore future growth, all that sort of stuff. Just like, no, let's I, talk free cash flow characteristics. I think one of the important things to think about here is actually that special distribution is generally a good business. And the reason why FastL has been such an incredible compounder is because they have a great return on capital. And this business, I think, is trending in that direction. So right now, the return on invested capital is about 16%. But obviously, they're right now, they're both under-earning on the EBITDA margins to what they believe they can be. And also... They made a large investment in working capital in uh, 2022 to the supply chain disruptions that they're now working through. So, and they've talked to both of these things extensively in the investor day. So, there's actually a really pretty clear line of sight for me to get return on invested capital here above that magical 20% number that kind of signifies a really good business for people. And so, that is, I think, one of the things that we're, you know, one of the reasons why these businesses get great multiples is because they have this sustainably really good return on invested capital. And DSGR has that as well. Um, you mentioned kind of CapEx. One of the interesting things here is they're not really manufacturing. You know, they are working with suppliers to manufacture. So CapEx is only about 1% of sales here. And DNA is right now a little over about 2% of sales. So there is a CapEx to DNA gap. But, you know, these are this is not hugely capital intensive. You know, you're talking about 20 million of CapEx out of, you know, just under $2 billion you know, dollar revenue base. And, you know, it's, you know, basically maybe 10%, you know, it's about 10% of EBITDA. So EBITDA actually flows through relatively well to free cash flow here because of that lack of capex. And, and just for people who are going to look, there have been acquisitions, but the EBITDA is actually a pretty clean number. In Q3, there was a big, they they just, the high school merger, there was a big merger add back charge. But you look at the prior quarters, EBITDA is a, actually a pretty clean number without like, you know, the the valiant level. We just bought someone and add everything back and, and all that sort of stuff. So that's pretty nice. Uh, just so valuation. So we've talked about 10 times EBITDA. It's actually, yeah. no, it's not. It's not 10 times free cash flow, but it's pretty close to 12-ish times unlevered free cash flow at 10 times EBITDA. How do you, again, I don't, I want to put aside like lots of inorganic growth here, but we mentioned peers are kind of in the mid double digit EBITDA multiples. Like how do you think about free uh, fair value here? Yeah, no. So I mean, I think if I look out a couple of, you know, so when we talk about also like mid double digit EBITDA for the peers, that generally ties to about a 4% free cash flow yield. So when I kind of think about um, valuation here, you know, there's two ways to think about it. One is kind of, let's look at a couple of years for the midterm. And so if I look at my 2025 numbers, you know, I have north of, you know, north of 200 million of EBITDA, which translates to about. Well, are you, are you assuming, I'm I'm guessing I'm not, you're I, I, a big acquisition. I'm actually not assuming significant M&A. Okay. I, I haven't, I know a lot of people love to build those multiples up. 
oh, you put in 200 million at 8X, add this, you know, add 25 million of EBITDA. I haven't done that. So this is more of an organic number where I get to kind of 225 million of EBITDA in 2025. Mainly. What type of organic growth would this business show without future acquisitions? So the way I think about this is there is obviously some tie to GDP because while these are not, while most of this is not, you know, capital equipment, there still is a, you know, if you're not using your excavator as much as United Rentals, you're wearing out fast, there's less off and you need fewer of them. So there is a little bit of an economic tie, but it's not nearly as intense as most industrial companies. And so you have GDP. And then I think of this as kind of GDP plus plus. And the plus plus is one is there is a trend from kind of to people increasingly outsourcing to vendor managed inventory for the cost savings they see. There's a trend to moving from smaller players to larger players like your um, like your Lawson's, your Jack's Pros, your Kimball Midwest, your Fastenals. And there's also that, and then I t- so you have the GDP growth, the growth of the industry. You have a significant market share growth for the industry. Um, you have market share growth for for these companies within their industry because they're all kind of they're all they're all very big players in their niches. How much of the industry still in house? Um, I, do, I don't, that's always been tough to quantify. I don't have great numbers on that, but I do think there's still a significant opportunity for, uh, you know, for, um, moving to a kind of more vendor managed system. Uh, cause again, as you say, it's, it's not the easiest thing to do. If you've always unpacked your own boxes and screws to, you know, trust someone else to come and do it for you takes a little bit of, I think, coaching in the beginning. Um, and then the third plus is obviously this cross sell they've talked about between the verticals. So like, you know, I think of, you know, I think of mid mid single digit plus organic growth to be on the revenue line to be very possible. And then if you look at the margin accretion um, percentage as well, that you know, they have credibility on. They When they came to this business, the business was, at, I believe, at a, was like seven and a half percent EBITDA margin when they first put them together and they committed to exiting at 10% by the end of 2022. And they're now at 10.6. Um, now that's in the most recent quarter, trailing 12 month is 9.5, but this 9.5 to 13.5, path, I think they have credibility with, they show they've got some clear um, initiatives that can get you there. So if you can buy that kind of mid single digit uh, top line growth with um, the margin expansion that comes, you know, it's possible to get to kind of high double digit uh, EBITDA growth. Uh, and and that's before you start adding in any, um, any M&A. And so, yeah, so I get to like, when I get to that EBITDA number, when I work down to cash flow, that gets me to roughly um, about $3 a share of free cash flow. So if you do that, you know, we've said 4% for the peers on 2025. Um, let's just use 5% now because it makes the math easier for me. So $3 a share free cash flow times uh, 20 is effectively roughly $60 a share. And that's a 2025 number. And then longer term, you have Brian's um, kind of $5 a share of EPS. And again, we're leaving aside working capital because of the DNA um, mismatch, free cash flow should not be too dissimilar from EPS. Um, so then let's say that's roughly $5 a share free cash or X, X working capital moves. Um, you know, again, if you want to put a 20 X on that, then all of a sudden in over the longer term period, you have that path to hundred. So I, I always struggle with the rollouts for a few reasons. One, a lot of time with the accounting. I don't think that's an issue here. Number two, you know, you mentioned earlier, a lot of times you'll still see people say, Hey, you know, I assume they're going to do $200 million of acquisitions yep. every year at eight times EBITDA. 
And, you know, they they should be valued at 10 times EBITDA. So that's going to create, what is that? That's two terms of multiple. That's $400 million of, of value or something there, yeah. right? I, I don't know if I did that math right, but yeah. you see what I'm saying. There's this yeah. multiple arbitrage. And I always struggle with that part for two reasons. Number one, I you know, it's not like the sellers are giving you something at a discount out of the goodness of their hearts, right? Like that, that's what they think their fair value is. So I, I never I never quite know. I do believe they're especially here, there can be accretive growth, but it's always tough to model. You haven't modeled any of that, so we can put that aside. The number two reason would be, hey, the industry multiple is eight times EBITDA and we're over here paying 10 times EBITDA, right? So when I say that, I either say, hey, either the insiders are wrong or we're already paying a premium to account for kind of that uh, accretive growth, or you know, I guess you could say public markets because public markets have better liquidity. Just pay our multiples, but I struggle with that a little bit. Does that make sense? Like, if yeah. everybody's selling at eight, I want to buy at seven. I don't want to buy at ten. No, and I, and I completely agree with that. That's the hardest part of like the roll-up story is the symbol. Oh, we buy at eight, we trade at twelve. Yay, value creation. Um, when <laughs> there were people who did that in the seventies, right? They issued oh, yeah, stock, yeah, exactly. and, 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 yeah. and when it works, it works. But the minute it stumbles, it can unravel very quickly. And we've seen a lot of examples of that. What I think is actually more compelling here is they buy at eight, but they make eight, six or five. Um, and so you have, you know, this significant growth in the underlying EBITDA of the businesses they acquire. And there's, you know, they have multiple examples of it. I would urge anyone to go back and look at the parts master, because again, LKC have controlled Lawson for this. Look at the parts master deal that Lawson did before. Um, look at the bolt supply deal. Look at the history of Lawson's acquisitions. And then look at the history of the Jexpro and Test Equity acquisitions they provided. And they have a long history of basically saying, we roughly pay, depending on the thing, about six to eight times, and we take out 2x plus in terms of the multiple within a couple of years, basically through the revenue accretion I talked about. And so that also is, and so that's the one thing is one is, you know, it's eight to the seller, but it's six to DSGR because they can run it better. And the second thing is also is then, okay, you know, you do have these opportunities of scale, you know. Hisco, um, or, you know, or like, let's use Key Equipment. Key Equipment was too small to get a Keysight relationship. Keysight is the most important player in testing measurement. So as part of test equity, the Key Equipment business is worth more because it has, it has the, it has the, um, it has that Keysight relationship that didn't have previously. Um, Resolux didn't have enough products to become a, a significant business um, under their ownership. With part of Jexpro, all of a sudden they have access to so many more SKUs that they are a bigger and more valuable business. So there are kind of returns to scale that I think, you know, you do, you should get multiple as a bigger player in these niches. But I, I do agree that the kind of pure financial engineering part of it is less interesting to me than the fact of the matter that they have opportunities to basically improve, to relatively quickly improve the EBITDA of whoever they acquire. You mentioned scale. So this is going to be my, my kind of loose last question, but the, let me ask that. And then I have one more, actually more important question, but let's stick with the scale. The company at their investor day said, hey, there's almost a smile curve, right? When you're too small, you don't have the scale advantages and everything. So your margins are low. Then as you grow and grow and grow, you get more scale, you get benefits. And then the smile curve would be when you start to get too big, you are you get too complex and you lose some of those scale benefits. So I, I guess I, I would have two questions for you on that. One, why? Like, why can you get too big? And two, you know, this company has gotten a lot bigger recently, right? They're still not at like Fastnell or some of these other guys' levels, but they they have hugely increased in size. They're rounds up to two billion. They're planning to get much bigger. But you know, are you comfortable that they're not close to that the negative yeah. side of that curve? Well, so I think you know one of the things to, to think about here is that 
you know, this is, while it is one company in the public markets, it really is three distinct verticals. And each vertical has its own sales, its own basically customer facing apparatus. So you have, you know, you have, C, you know, each of the verticals is on CEO and CFO. And while there's a little bit of back office that's commingled, it's really not much at all yet. So it's actually three companies that are large for their, you know, are the leading players in their niches. But, you know, it's not like we're actually a, you know, a $1.8 billion revenue business. It's really, we're more three separate businesses. So I think we're far away from the idea of being- Even there though, like you we're talking about how each of the three verticals can bring the other one's synergies, right? Yeah. You could probably do that at three, you could probably do that at five, but like, if you got, if you and I were talking, we're like, they have 10 different verticals. It's going to be really hard to I, get like CEO one and 10 and two and nine. To yeah, I, I don't think they, they intend to expand the number of verticals. You know, right now the, the idea is effectively there is a lot of room to consolidate in each of these three verticals. So I think the three verticals will be, will remain as they are. Um, what I would say is, you know, back to kind of financial engineering public markets. One of the funny things that they always used to complain about when Lawson was kind of small on its own, you know, Lawson you know, when it was a public markets company, it was like 30 or $40 million a EBITDA. Um, and so spending $2 million on a new ERP really actually hit um, results and really was impactful. And they talked about, you know, they've talked about, you know, they just are kind of in the process of firing their 5% of their customer base that's uneconomic at Lawson. He was like, Brian, I talked about, I did not, I could not do that as a when Lawson was a standalone public company because it would have decimated our share price because people would have thought that we were losing all this business. So there are things wherein like a, it costs the same to implement some new tech or do a, do a, an investment at the company this size, but it, you can hide, you can hide one or 2 million of incremental expense a lot better off across 200 million of EBITDA than you can across 30. You know, the first thing that I've heard Brian say that I don't agree with is, hey, we couldn't do it because people were would decimate our sale price. Like he didn't have needs to tap the equity markets. He controlled 45% of the company. I would have said like, hey, do it, have a share buyback plan in place and, and buy the shit out of your shares yeah. if people don't get like, hey, profits aren't going down. Profits are actually going up as we fire these uneconomic. All right, two last questions. One is going to be capital. Let's quickly hit capital allocation, then I'll hit the big one. Yeah. Capital allocation. So obviously they want to do both on M&A, all this sort of stuff. But, you know, leverage is kind of already at their targets. And they've said that there's going to be a ton of cash flow flowing in. They, I'll, I'll let you take it from here. I'll make it a softball. But they've said they're going to be very shareholder friendly going forward. Like, how do you expect cash to get allocated with uh, yeah. now that leverage is where it should be? No. And so, you know, I think they are very return focused. Yeah. If you listen to the investor day, and again, I appreciate you're saying that people should do that because I, I agree the investor day was pretty incredible. Yeah, they were constantly talking about returns on capital. So, you know, they're talking about getting, you know, investments in working capital to get returns on- 50% return on oh, uh, yeah. networking capital. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're they're like, we're, we're at 35 return on, return on networking capital now, we want to get 50%. So they're, they're talking about like investments they can make and whether it's an organic investment in the business. Right now, I do believe the majority of the cash flow will go to M&A, which, you know, as long as they continue to do the deals they've done, to me- to me, every deal, the stock has reacted very well to every deal they've done because every deal they've done has been very good. Again, you can look at Hisco, you can look at Partsmaster. When they do a deal, it's generally pretty well received. Um, but they also have bought back shares in the market. They bought back shares late in 2022 when the share price got below 20. Again, and this is, you know, these are, there's a, um, there's a split in there. Um, so they bought back shares in the past. You know, I think that's something they would consider in the future if they can't find other deals. I mean, they've talked about being very opportunistic in terms of capital allocation. Um, would they pay a dividend and maybe at some point, but I think the share price has to be far higher than it is today to do that. So I think right now the priorities are first priority is still M&A. Second priority would be share repurchases if they don't have the other options and then 
dividend would depend on where the share price is. Um, and you've seen it. I mean, they, they have bought back shares in the past. And now a quick break to remind you that this episode is brought to you exclusively by AlphaSense, the AI platform behind the world's biggest investment decisions. AlphaSense gives you the tools you need to provide better analysis for you and your clients. As yet another value podcast listener, visit alpha-sense.com slash FS today to beat FOMO and move faster than the market. That's alpha-sense.com slash FS. All right. Uh, actual last question, and this is yeah. not an easy one, but you know, I, I've got, I think a mutual friend of ours who owns DSGR, I emailed him and asked him for questions on DSGR and he didn't respond. So he'll know who he is and he, he knows I'm calling him out here. But he mentioned like, I, I think he once said, hey, look, with DSGR, I've I've seen specialty, uh, specialty distributors before. I've sold them too soon. I'm not going to make that mistake here. We've got a great management team. We've got a long runway to go. You know, yeah, if it trades for 100,000 times EBITDA, I'll sell it. But I, I'm going to ride this as a compounder because I see really attractive long-term returns here, right? So- my question is, he's not the only one, you know, I, you see it, uh, the management team sees it, people who've invested in Fastenal, people who've invested in a pool, like there is a very, everyone knows specialty distributors when run well, and if you buy them at a reasonable multiple, you can compound really well. My question is, what breaks a specialty mm-hmm. distributor, right? Like what causes it to not work, to fail? Because every time I've heard, hey, this model always works, and I'm not seeing... Like the SGR specific, I'm just saying, what would cause a specialty distributor to fail? Has there been one? What's the tail risk that these stop working? So I think, you know, let's take the longer term, because obviously in the short term, you know, the share price might struggle due to economic cyclicality, things like that. You have as well, these are stickier businesses. They're still economically exposed. And obviously if we have a big recession, yeah, there will be, the funny thing about this business is it will actually generate a a tremendous amount of cash flow. I think during that period is they draw down working capital, but the stock's probably going to go down. That's, that's a near term risk. The longer term risks. I mean, you can look at you can look at what it's been in the past. Um, so Lawson previously, they used to have their employees were all 1099s and they had a huge issue with employee um, kind of alignment and whatnot. They had then moved them all over to be full-time employees and that caused a tremendous amount of disruption. So one area that can really mess it up is is uh, Salesforce disruption, you know, again. Is it, is it kind of title insurance? Like I remember with title insurance when you, you had agents and like the, it's a known thing in title insurance that some of your agents will steal from you eventually and yeah. you, you have to fire them, but they're always accruing for like, is it kind of, hey, your sales forces are such trusted intermediaries that a few of them will take advantage and you have to account for that. And like the worry would be that gets out of hand. I, I would say more that historically when they're, the sales force wasn't as well aligned, it wasn't full-time employee, they didn't have as much insight. And then you had these people with all these freedom or used to do whatever they wanted. And when they tried to bring them under the corporate umbrella, some of them rebelled and whatnot. And so you have the, you have the risk of, you know, one of the things that, why I worry about Lawson is, you know, we talked about the value of the tenured sales reps. Um, you know, these are, the, that's the asset here. Those re- sales reps are incredibly valuable. And so if you have something like whether, you know, some of them are eventually going to start aging out, you're going to have retirements, you're going to have to start backfilling those really experienced reps with uh, newer reps that you're going to have to get up the. And so if you, if you had a thing where you lost a significant portion of your well-tenured sales reps, this is a relationship business. That is a huge, that is a huge potential problem. Um, you know, also, obviously, one of the things you have to continue to do well is manage inventory. You know, if you, it's very, if you get, you know, you have to be able to understand your customers' needs. I mean, granted, it's a very short cycle business, but, you know, you don't want to get over inventory to the point where you are, you know, where you have a bunch of obsolete inventory sitting on shelves that you have to start taking provisions for. Um, Sales reps, I'm just sorry, you know, plumbers. Yeah. Anyone could make a, a really nice living as a plumber, right? It's not exactly like, but 
you're literally managing poop. So people might look down their nose on it, but so there's a plumber shortage, right? And despite the fact you can make a great living sales reps here, where do they find their sales reps? Is it like when you talk about, Hey, there's going to be a re retirement club at some point, yeah. is that replaceable? Or is it the plumber issue where, Hey, maybe because it's not the sexiest industry, even though I believe the sales reps are all making over hundred K a year, once they get fully seasoned, is it kind of the issue? Oh, you know, you're going to auto repair shops and dealing with nuts and bolts and oil. Are they going to have trouble replacing that? Yeah, I mean, I think you know one of the one of the things Lawson had historically had an issue with was they really tried to aggressively grow their sales force and they didn't do a great job of onboarding new reps. What they are trying to do right now is basically help their reps make more money. So by taking off some of these, you know, like till very recently, their CRM system was effectively an Excel document, um, and so they're giving you know, and they're giving the reps a lot more tools to kind of remove some of the non-profit generating parts of their business so they can generate more profit. With the idea that the, you make reps more money, they'll be happier. It'll be easier to season reps if you can get them above that area where they're actually really making a living. So that they're trying to invest in that. And historically, they have not done a great job of seasoning reps at Lawson. Um, you know, one of the things, I actually think this is a more enjoyable business than you give a credit for. Because unlike a plumber where you're going to different houses and you're never kind of talking. It's an emergency. The toilet's broken. Everybody's exactly. Stressed. Everyone's all stressed out. No one's happy to see you. You know, if you're going to see Bob, your buddy at the local repair shop, and you see him every week, you're talking football, you're talking whatever. And they actually said that the part of the problem of getting some of the reps to get rid of some of these kind of non-economic accounts is- They're friends, yeah. That's my friend, Bob. And I, so I, I wasn't trying to fully avoid it's a plumber. I just meant if it's difficult yeah, no, to, exactly. to find it. Yeah. I think there's a little more lifestyle enjoyment, but I do think, yeah, when we talk about things that need to continue to do well, they do need to continue to um, acquire new reps and they need to do a very good job of maturing them up so that, because eventually some of these older reps will retire. So I do think continuing on the Lawson side and the Jex, and actually on all these sides, because the test equity, you know, you know, their sales force is incredibly technical. People selling, you know, a Keysight machine. I mean, these are high-end engineers. These are PhDs. These are really technical people. And so that is that is so much of the asset here that when you think about the way this can get broken, is I was thinking about okay, what's the key competitive advantage of the business? And to me, it is kind of these these rep um, that they have and the relations they have. So the way I see it getting broken is if you do something to in some way that basically hurts that asset, hurts your hurts your reps. Has there been a scaled specialty distributor that you're aware of that has? not worked. I mean, I'm sure again, if you and I went and started a mom and pop with five customers, yeah. there's a chance that fails. But you know, has there been a scaled one that you're aware of that kind of hasn't worked or that's unraveled? So the ones that have generally done worse are the ones that have been more kind of broad by commodity guys. Those are the ones who are starting to really feel the pressure of Amazon, feel the pricing pressure. In terms of the specialty space, generally just to find you quickly define broadline versus specialty. I mean, so broadline is kind of a lot more of your kind of basic products like yeah, if you're buying a basic mop or something like that, or you know, it's really generic it's the stuff that's Amazon. It's something that's more of a commodity product. Whereas if you're buying a private label Lawson fastener, you're, you're not going to find that on Amazon. It's not Amazonable because one, again, these fasteners, yeah. 30 of them might cost 30 bucks. Yeah. So the shipping costs, if, if you're going to start ordering from Amazon, yeah. and then it's more not just the shipping cost, it's the time cost of, you know, a mechanic yes. goes in. Amazon does, could Amazon launch a specialty dis distribution in some of these things? I think Amazon is historically not loved having a, yeah. yeah. It's a people intensive business. Yep. Yeah. So, so Amazon likes having replaceable cogs, not um the fact that we're we just had a labor shortage, right? And yes. we probably do still have one. So in a labor shortage, your time is very valuable. And these guys manage their mechanics time. If we ever went into a labor unshortage, right? Yep. Would 
especially distributors be at risk because there we're saying, hey, mechanics, like, okay, whatever, take an extra two hours to go and sort inventory and then go order them off Amazon because, you know, we've got plenty of extra mechanics, wages are coming down. Is that a risk? I I think that actually definitely is. I think it's a really interesting question because I think they they talk about the tailwind of kind of labor, sh labor shortage and the shortage, especially of kind of skilled industrial labor. So if there was ever a surplus of skilled industrial labor, perhaps then, yeah, as you say, the mechanics time is worth a lot less. I think you, you'd also have to see mechanic wages come down significantly to offset that. So I think there is a, if there was a massive surplus that basically made your mechanics time, and I'm just using mechanic interchangeably, there's obviously but a lot. But then you probably just fire the mechanic because why do you want somebody on staff yeah. doing that versus the, yeah. Yeah, but I think I think your, your point being is, yeah, I think what the, the raison d'etre is to basically save you money and time for your skilled worker. If the skilled worker is no longer as valuable, you know, then maybe there's maybe their value adds a little bit less, but you still have the kind of many to many issue where it might out. Do you really, you know, if you're XYZ, um, if you're United Rentals, do you want to manage 7,000 suppliers and, you know, a couple hundred thousand SKUs that you need? Um, or would you rather have someone do it for you? No, I, I only ask because, you know, yeah. again, so many of these worked. And as my friend said, like, I've seen these work before. When you, when you buy them at 10 and then you sell them because they get to 11 or something, like that's the mistake, right? You want to ride these for multi-year compounding. They're going to trade for a big multiple. They Every time you think they've run out, if you found a really good one, they're going to do another good deal. It's going to look great. Yeah. And you know, A, that's a really attractive proposition to me. But B, when somebody says they all work, my first thing is, how does this break? Like yeah. uh, I've been broke before. I, I, how do I get hurt? I completely agree with you. And I do think that that is a really important question. I think, you know, specifically, I think one of the challenge, one of the other kind of unique to DSGR challenges is, as you say, it is illiquid. It's relatively complex because you do, you know, while these are, while there's a kind of core DNA of these three businesses, you still do have to learn three different businesses. Um, there's, I would call it two and a half sales side analysts. One of them has effectively punched out this forever by saying it's, quote, too complex. Um, and so there is the idea of, you know, for this, for us to really benefit from the common rider thing in the public markets, eventually you do have to get a public markets multiple. And the path to that for this one, the path to price discovery here, because of the nature of it, might be longer than it would be for like a Yeah, you know, because especially because LK, LKCM owns so much of it, it's tough because to get more, there's two ways to get more liquidity. One would be them selling, which is everybody's going to freak out if they sell, start selling on the open market. So, you know, you you do wonder endgame here just because of their huge position there. Yeah. But there there is one other path to liquidity. I mean, the company could do a secondary without LKC, LKCM selling. Or, you know, you could talk the next deal. If the company starts getting a multiple, the next deal is a stock deal. And then that person starts bleeding out over yeah. time. So there's pass. I do wonder, like, hey, if we're sitting here three years from now, like, is this LKCM takes the whole thing in? Do they try to sell it to a bigger company? Would Fastenella or someone like... Like, hey, you know, this is special distribution, but I, I do yeah. hear, I, I just, I think it's funny because people email me like, oh, that's an e-liquid stock. It's like, hey, as you and I are talking, it's three o'clock Eastern. This stock has traded 40,000 shares at, let's just round it to 30 to make the, the math yeah. really easy, right? So that's $1.2 million worth of value. I'm sure there are listeners who 1.2 million would be a small position for them. But, you know, we're talking about something that if Brad is right, if the management team is right, could multi-year 20%, nothing's invested by, but you know, no. you can paint a path to multi-year 20% plus IRRs. Like you could buy a couple thousand shares every day and leg into it for like, you know, spend a little time for 10 trading days to get that type of IRR. And again, not investing by, but just saying, it's funny people tell me, oh, we look, it's like, I, I think you could probably park several million dollars into this if you took a little bit of time. No, and I think, and, and you, you mean, again, yeah, it's not investing by that, but I do think one of the things you kind of brought up is, you know, LKCM, this is not just like a, 
oh, they own 70% of this, but this is a rounding error for them. Um, this is 35% of, you know, I think somewhere in there, percent of their fund. This is a fund maker for them. They can't get, you know, they can't really afford to get this wrong. So it's something they deeply, deeply care about the outcome. And it, not, I think the CEOs uh, got interesting strike prices yeah. on his options, everything. We probably don't have full time, but everybody is very aligned with getting with me. Yeah, I mean, just very quickly say we only know this because of the structure of the deal. The the only C, the only division CEO's compensation we know is Cesar, the CEO of Lawson, and his strikes are 27 and a half, 40, 55 and 70. And again, we're talking about a twenty seven dollar share. Price. When did those options expire? Do you know? Um, it's years out. I actually don't remember that off the top of my head. Oh. But yeah, he he got them last year, so I would guess several years from now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but okay. yeah, we're still talking. We're talking about you know seventy is seventy is a pretty big number when you're sitting at twenty seven. Yeah. And all, this is all split adjusted, by the way. Just to remember, there's a two there was a two one split for people when you go back and look at the history. Cool. Well, Brad, uh, I've been wanting to have you on for two years now. Finally got you on. I think people can tell why I wanted to have you on. This has been great. And it's going to have to not be two years before we get you on again. I want to- I'm good. Andrew, I've enjoyed it. Look forward to chatting again at some point. So excellent. All right. Thank you so much. A quick disclaimer. Nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this podcast. Please do your own work and consult a financial advisor. Thanks.